listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. John, come out to review movies. Can you dig it? <laughs> I can dig it. Yeah, I rewatched re- that recently and I forgot he doesn't have a very big part. The can you dig it guy, whatever his name no. is. It's, it's, uh, so we watched recently Hellstrom, which mm-hmm. is terrible, but it's on Hulu. It's a Marvel adaptation of Son of Sa- uh, Satan comics. You'd never guess to watch it. But there's a character comes in about halfway through as sort of the leader of a sort of group of, well, we used to be with the church, but now we do whatever it takes to get things done. And I was like, why does that old lady look so familiar? And she was like the lead female in the Warriors. I was oh. like, oh, my God, I haven't seen her in anything in forever. Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. My Also, weirdly, my wife brought it up last night. I have no idea why, but she was like, you know what sucks? The director's cut of the Warriors. It sucks. And she went off on this whole rant about, why do they add this thing where the transitions all turn into comic pages? Everyone's like, what is that? That is, doesn't even have a relation to this thing. Stop it now. And she's right. Sometimes director's cuts are decidedly not as good as the original theatrical cut. I always hold up Donnie Darko as my best example of like, wow, they really put their dick in the dirt with the changes to the director's cut there. But uh, the Warriors, yeah, that's true as well. We're not reviewing either one of those movies this week. Didn't want to give you the wrong impression here. Well, crap, I guess this is a short episode then because that's all (laughs) I watched were Donnie Darko, director's cut, and the Warriors. That's a weird coincidence, John. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know oh well, that well. So you can find me on Twitter at Golson G H O L S O N. So I wanted to point out real quick that Christmas is coming up, which means Digital Noise will be doing its best of the year. Uh, here's what the the best deals you can get for Christmas show. I already I, I poked John and Aaron about this about a month ago, and I'm repoking you. Okay. Poke, 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 poke. Uh, Christmas this is, is coming. coming. The goose is getting fat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Please exactly. to put pennies in old man's hats. What is that yeah, a thing? That's what they. I thought you put them on their eyes. What they used to do. Please, <laughs> please to put a penny in an old man's hat. Oh Jesus, that's more archaic than me, and mm-hmm. I'm pretty archaic. But I was going to throw out as well for Christmas. Uh, my buddy still runs Agronautics. That's the Lovecraft bobblehead. Woo, it's mesmerizing, and I like to give him a little shout out because he's a good guy. Uh, let's see if I can add this to the. There we go. So that is, if you're watching the video, their page with a lot of the stuff they offer. They got like Jim Lindbergh from Pennywise, Milo Goes to College from The Descendants, uh, Jimmy G from Murphy's Law, Skeleton from Rancid, uh, Gibby Haynes, 
from Butthole Surfers, Koki the Clown, Greg Graffin from Bad Religion, a whole bunch of stuff here uh, to choose from. Operation Ivy, Andrew WK, uh, Milo from The Descendants again, but real, F- leaving from Fear. They have a whole ton of stuff, and as well as enable pins, and they have a closeout section even with with uh, good deals on stuff that they're moving out. So yeah, I highly recommend checking out Agronautics. That's agronautics.com. And uh, yeah, that's the end of my plug. That's all I got there for the plugs, except for the plugs of the movies that we are reviewing today. So let's get to it, shall we, John? We sh- we shall. Hold on. I-, I just realized that I did not, in fact, forward you the list. So I'm going to forward you the list. Now he's like, well, I haven't I, watched I have, any of this I have show. no idea what we've watched. <laughs> I'll just do that real quick. Okay. Yeah, now yeah, you have the list. I see it. It's Donnie Darko, director's cut and warriors, just no, like we it, said it, earlier. It's it, a, that's it, clearly it, spelled no. out here. No, it is not. You are mistaken. But what it is, is starting off with a film that, you know, I never really thought about Amazon Woman on the Moon before as a sequel to Kentucky Fried Movie, but I guess it kind of is in the sense that John Landis had previously directed the Kentucky Fried Movie in 1977. And 10 years later, he's like, man, I kind of miss this whole sort of a spoof series of sketches movie compilation thing. And I kind of want to do it again. Now, he's not working with the Zucker Brothers on this one, but he is working with a sizable cast of people and creators here and different directors who come in to do each one. Joe Dante, Carl Gottlieb, Peter Horton, John Landis, and Robert K. Weiss direct various episodes of this. And this is now available on a really nice Blu-ray from Kino. I was pleased to get it because I honestly haven't watched this one for a while. And I guess for me, this was yeah, kind of a late mid-teens favorite, if you will. Yeah, for me too. I was 17 when it came out. But, you know, there was a film where like, oh, wow, this is my kind of thing. Now, I don't think this is as good as Kentucky Fried Movie. That's personal opinion. But it is pretty damn funny. And there's a lot of really, oh, my God, look who it is. Moments on here, like Michelle Pfeiffer is in here. David Allen Greer, B.B. King, Joey Pants, Joey Pantoliano, Rosanna Arquette, Steve Gutenberg, Henry Silva, who keeps popping up in stuff I'm watching lately. I'm I'm watching for the show, the original Buck Rogers series. And he was like one of the main bad guys in the in the movie. And then they recast him for the show. But uh, William Marshall, Ed Begley Jr., and what I think is one of the funniest bits in the whole thing is the son of the Invisible Man, whose the formula did not make invisible, but drove him insane. So he thinks he's invisible and is walking around completely naked. And everyone in the town is like, Jesus, it's that guy again. Just pretend he's invisible. But yeah, I, I, I think this is it's a minor classic. I'd say it's a it's like a cult classic. Right? Yeah, it's. It was. I was probably in the same boat. I'm a little bit younger than you, and I I rented it when it came out at a sleepover, and it was so funny at that age. It was so <laughs> funny at like for me, I must have been like twelve or thirteen, and it was just a sweet spot, and also kind of like illicit because it has a lot of nudity in it too. So oh, I was just at that age dude. where it's like you know I'm seeing something that's like really really illicit. Um, I've seen it so many times over the years. I, the, the nude scene in question had Monique Gabrielle, who I was super into at this age because she was in Bachelor Party. She had like that one scene where she was the girl who they had set up for Tom Hanks is like, oh, she's perfect. And she just has basically one line and one nude scene. And then she's like the most perfect woman you've ever seen in your life at 17 years old. I was like, who is that? Yeah. And uh, she has an extended nude sequence in this movie in, in a pretty funny bit. You have you have this thing here too where I had taped Amazon Women 
on the moon off of television. So I knew yep. that there were significant differences. Like my tape had, for instance, the ventriloquist dummy bit, which was not part of the movie. It had the extended roast, which is not part of the movie. And here in this Blu-ray, you do get all of those segments that were, that were lost from, uh, from other cuts. I really appreciated, you know, I've seen this so many times that I think it's lost its power on me in a, in, in a certain sense. I, I still like it, and I can recognize that there was a time that I thought this was, like, really, really funny. But I have to say, like, it's it's sanded off its edges for me. And, and a lot of the stuff that used to make me laugh didn't, didn't... You know, I'm just, like, I'm watching it, but I'm not necessarily, like, laughing. I do think The Son of Invisible Man, which for some reason wasn't one of the funnier ones when I was a kid. There were a, cu- there were a couple that grew in my estimation. One of them was Bullshit or Not. Yes. It was somehow funnier now. And... Son of the Invisible Man was also funnier now. Um, but I've also consumed more Universal Monster movies since Son of the Invisible Man. I've, it's weird. The, the bullshit or not is the one that I always remember the best from here because, you know, it's Jack, what if the Loch Ness Monster was Jack the Ripper and, and with this ridiculous bit and Henry Silver just going, bullshit or not? What's great, the thing about that, so there's a there's a documentary on this that, if you like the movie at all, really makes this like a, a good thing to own. There's a documentary yeah. that gets into how this was made. It was written by these guys that were writing for the tonight show. And they wrote a bunch of sketches and directors came in and got to choose which sketches. So directors that were invited later got, <laughs> got like the runts, like the left leftover sketches. And the thing yeah. about the bullshit or not, the, the, the connection that I just made there is um, they talk about the fact that that sketch was written around the fact that, they they found that dinosaur uh, thing that was available, so they wrote the sketch around the dinosaur thing to do was was the Loch Ness monster Jack the Ripper. They would said, "Oh, it's from some other movie." I, is that from Baby? Is that one of the is that one of the brachiosaurs from Baby? If so, like, was it an evil brachiosaur? Because that is the most lascivious, evil-looking <laughs> dinosaur ever. It's like... <laughs> they talk about how low-budget this movie is, and the fact that they were just, like, raiding props and writing to the props like, really tips its hand as to how just how low-budget it was. But uh, it's still a lot of fun. Yeah, if I had never seen this before, I probably would have laughed more than I do now. Cause I'm just like you, I've seen this so many times. It's just been a while. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple stuff I forgot about, but that was usually for good reason. It was like, Oh, well that wasn't as funny, but there's a lot of charm here as well. I, I think if you've never seen this and you do traditionally like, you know, good sketch comedy movies, then this is definitely a must see for sure. Um, it's not all going to hit, but some of it will. One of the other best ones is one that they thought they weren't even going to include with Carrie Fisher as the star and Paul Bartel, where it was like a parody of reefer madness with social diseases. That is a mid credits. Oh yeah. Shit. We got one more sketch thing that is well worth your time. And maybe, like I said, maybe for when I was younger, I didn't think that was that funny. And now I find it funnier maybe because I've watched more of the things that it's making fun of. Definitely. But yeah, this uh, comes with the documentary you mentioned, which is, I think, alone makes this worth watching for in a retro way. Like, oh, if you remember it, the documentary like adds so much interesting color 
behind the story of how this came together. And it's got a booklet with interviews with Sybil Danning, who's one of the leads in the actual Amazon Women on the Moon sequence, and the composer Ira Newborn. It has audio commentaries by co-director Carl Gottlieb, uh, cinematographer Daniel Pearl, and Mondo Digital's Nathaniel Thompson. Plus, it's got a blooper reel. And then, as we said, the scenes that were only on the television version, but uh, were not integrated into the film version. You have to watch them as sort of like the deleted sequences. So, yeah, I really thought this was well worth your time, quite frankly, no matter which side of the having watched it a million times like me and John or never even having heard of it before. It's really worth checking out. Anyway, let's go on to our next one, which we're moving all the way forward to the year. I don't know what year this is supposed to take place in when they go to the future, but 2020 with the third installment God, uh, the last one was in 1991, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And now we've got Bill and Ted Face the Music, a film they really had the script laid out as in 2010. So they've been working on this for 10 years, but they didn't actually get the deal to move it into production to 2018. I'd actually been following the writers, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, who wrote all three of these for years online with their regular updates on is there, are we finally going to get to do Bill and Ted's and how everyone involved really wants to do another Bill and Ted to tie it all up. And so I was really excited about this. And I got to say, maybe it's something to do with the fact that I was one of those weird people who was wildly excited for a third Bill and Ted's movie that this kind of came in underneath my expectations for funny. But I did think that there's no question this has a complete, real heart to it. Uh, it definitely finds a way to tie in a lot of the things you love from both those two movies. It really soars when death comes back into the picture, played again by William Sadler, who was also the standout of the second film as well. And like I said, overall, I just didn't find this as funny, but I did find it thoroughly charming as Bill and Ted find themselves old and going, we never wrote the song and being... Uh, Christian Shaw, who plays George Carlin's character's Rufus, his daughter from the future, is like, what's going on, guys? You're kind of running out of time to write the song. It's going to bring all the world together. And they're like, I don't know. So they have to go on a quest to figure out how to do it. And they decide, as is the way of Bill and Ted, to be lazy and just go to the future in various points and try and contact themselves to figure out what the song is from them, just steal it from themselves. But the future version themselves are not very nice in the various uh, iterations we see of them. And then as well, the story follows their daughters. Now, a lot of people bitch, but they were sons in the movie. They actually found a way to retrospectively explain this. But uh, Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne come in playing their daughters, who are themselves musicians and have their own quest to fulfill in the film. But I'm really curious to know, John, what you actually thought of this one. I don't believe we've talked about this. I thought this was cute. I have a lot of like nitpicky stuff. I know, you know, I think one of the things that 2020 has happened in 2020 is that I think people are really hungry for new entertainment. And mm -hmm. so when things come along, they, it's like every, I feel like there's been a lot of things this year that have just completely blown everybody's socks off that are like fine. <laughs> that, are, yeah. that are like, I think, you know, um, uh, what was the, uh, uh, Palm Springs, like being one of those movies, like back where people were just like losing their mind over Palm Springs, and it was like it's cute, like it's, yeah, it's fine. That was me too. Yeah, I was like it's fine. I don't know why you I, people going. It's the best movie of this year. Yeah. I'm like, is it? <laughs> yeah, there's been a lot of that this year, and I think it's just because people are really looking for the positive, and and it's and it's good. I think I think 
approaching films, I think I, I would rather people approach films with this is going to be really fun than approaching them with a chip on their shoulder, even if that means they're going to overpraise something, uh, which I found this mildly overpraised. I think, I think one of the things is there was a lot of stuff about how great Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne are. They're both very good. I think the litmus test is would I watch a movie that was just uh, Thea and Billy? Would I watch Samara Weaving and Bridget Lundy Payne in their own Bill and Ted? And I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would be like super excited because I don't think the movie gives them a lot of chance for real comedy. They, mm-hmm. they kind of move the plot along and they're both appealing actresses, but I don't think that they're necessarily given a lot to uh, make you hungry for more of the daughters. Uh, even though there's, you know, and I've even heard at the time that the movie came out, people were talking about they were going to carry the franchise forward. And it's like, that's, that's cool. I just wish this movie had, I, I wish this movie made me love them more or invest more into them or get more into them as characters. I, this is a lot of fun. I, the other like weird, goofy, nitpicky thing I have is how Keanu Reeves is, is dressed in this movie, like wardrobe wise, um, just looks like he just rolled in. Like it, like Bill looks costumed. Um, yeah, it, he looks like what somebody his age who grew up as a metalhead might wear. Maybe he's sort of he's a jeans and t shirt guy. Ted, Ted looks like what Keanu Reeves wears. Like Ted looks literally like Keanu Reeves, and I get that it is Keanu Reeves, but it's it's there's a real disconnect when you watch. And I watch these like within this. I watch one, two, three, like. Within the same week, I think I did. I did them in days instead of back to back, and the Ted in this was visually a little jarring because it. And I get everybody ages, but I couldn't make the character leap from how he dressed as he was younger to how he was dressed in this movie. I I couldn't make the. Uh, I couldn't draw the line to like slacks and a button up shirt. It was just like, is really Ted? Really? <laughs> because the movie doesn't make him like a sellout. He's supposed to be sort of the same dude. So I'm like, if you're the same dude, why, why are you just wearing Keanu Reeves' wardrobe? Like, the, <laughs> it's, it's a little odd. But no, this movie had a lot of highlights. I also really liked um, Anthony Kerrigan from uh, uh, What's the Hitman Show? Uh, Barry. Barry from Barry as um, yeah. this like Terminator robot that's chasing them through time who ends up being one of the highlights of the movie. Um, I do like it that it, that it, it does the thing that some movies do where it kind of combines one and two into one movie for the third part. It takes the, we have to travel through time and find all the musicians. We have to find all of the historical figures from the first one and then ties it into like the fantastical world hopping of the second one and sort of smushes them together into, into one movie. Except the weirdness of like. Oh, our drummer is going to be some cave person. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That was weird. Gug or something. I don't know. That was an odd choice, I thought. I mean, like I said, it's it's fine. There's nothing I actively dislike about this at all. And it never seemed like it was going to happen. Like, that's the other thing, too, is like, I, I never would have guessed this would have happened. No, I thought they this would get to a point where they'd be old enough. They'd go like, okay, it's just clearly you know, not going to happen. We can imagine what it would have been like. But yeah, I mean, it, it's fine. And it's a movie I'll go back and watch again, just like I watched the originals. I definitely prefer the first two. I mean, the second one is actually my favorite. Sorry. Sorry, everyone. It is I, like state between station and death. Man. See, so I'm, I'm a first movie guy, but I think yeah. this, I think this one's this one. I don't know. I, I, 
I don't know if I would say this is my second favorite one. I, the first one's still my favorite one. Um, okay. I, I would probably put this equal to the second one to me. I probably I did laugh out loud more in this one than I think I did in the second one, though. Okay. Fair enough. Well, there are some bonus features. It's not available on 4K. It's only available on Blu-ray. But there is uh, the official Bill and Ted Face the Music panel at Comic-Con, which is about 43 minutes of an edited Zoom panel with, like, pretty much everybody on it, uh, which is... At points, funny. Kevin Smith is is running it. He's Kevin Smith always is like, regardless of how I personally feel about the bulk of his movies, he is the consummate host and the perfect guy to host this sort of thing. Uh, he's very funny, very good at addressing everybody, making everybody feel comfortable. And yeah, it was well, it was worth watching. It's nothing that's going to blow your mind in it, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. By the way, this is directed by the same guy who did Galaxy Quest which I did not realize until I watched that. But there is also Be Excellent to each Well, there's a couple different EPKs in here that are just like, I mean, they look like EPKs. They've got the big thing on the screen, Bill and Ted, what Death Crib is like, you know, stuff like that. You're like, all right, this clearly played somewhere as a marketing thing on face on YouTube or something probably. <laughs> and now there's, once you've seen the movie, there is literally no reason at all to watch that. But uh, yeah, it comes with a digital redemption code, and I do I, I think it's worth it. If you're already a Bill and Ted fan, I think this will overly let you down. Let's move on to something that I guarantee is almost certainly not on y'all's radars, which is Bloody Nose and Empty Pockets. This is a odd little experiment of a film that weirdly kind of... There was some criticism from indie circles of this because it's filmed completely like a documentary, and in some ways it is a documentary, but it's also not. This guy took this bar in Vegas uh, called Roaring Twenties, or at least it was called that for the movie. These filmmaker brothers, Bill and Turner Ross. And they got bar flies from other bars around the country. Apparently several are from Louisiana. Uh, and then mixed into that, there's a few actual actors. Uh, although those guys too are apparently also bar flies in their own way. And basically just filmed them talking and hanging out, but then would throw them suggestions. would be like, okay, and now this happens. Okay, this is a thing y'all should talk about. And it's all taking place on the eve of Trump's election in 2016, which weirdly barely comes into it at all. But it is set on in the fictional story on the eve of the bar closing. It's final night, which they're just going to stay open all night for, which you can do if you're a bar in Las Vegas, which is probably why they set it in Las Vegas. But this is a very cinema verite type of film, despite obviously there being lots of illusion into the thing. It doesn't really have a plot. It has characterization up the wazoo for all these. I mean, if you it, I, I was watching it with my wife and I was like, this isn't really a movie so much as it is a dive bar simulation, <laughs> which can be fun in its own rights. But we were both mesmerized by it. I couldn't tear my eyes away from it, especially from the guy who they actually got as the, as kind of the primary actor here. This one guy who is sort of the bar custodian. He's basically a longtime regular who sleeps in the bar. They let sleep in the bar. And then he just kind of wakes up and does whatever needs to be done and drinks whiskey. That guy was great. <laughs> so how much did you know about this movie going in? Very little. I thought it was a doc, straight okay. documentary. So I, I did as well, and and I'm watching it, and it's fine. I, I was kind of going. I, I don't know that there's a story here. Like I get that yeah. I get that the filmmakers thought that oh we'll go to this dive bar and film people all night on the night of this bar's closing, and that 
it'll sort of be like slice of life and we'll kind of find the story in the editing and I'm watching it going like, that's, that's obviously like, it's a fine idea for a doc. I don't know if they like, I don't know if they captured it. And this is, these are my thoughts as I'm watching it. Like, yeah, I just don't know if they, uh, I don't know if they, if they really nailed what they were setting out to do. And then something, I can't remember what it was. I, I wanted to look up something and I think I wanted to look up the name of, of somebody involved with it. So I, I went, anyways, I looked it up on IMDb. Suddenly, this is an hour into the movie. Suddenly, my lens for the movie changes completely. Um, most of the people in the movie are actors. It was actually shot in uh, New Orleans. They shot exteriors in Vegas, and they, they had a place in New Orleans. And most of the people in the cast are New Orleans actors. It's funny... I am mutual friends with probably five or six different people that are in the cast. We have like <laughs> social, we have like social network connections through my, my stuff at the theater here. And one of those people is actor Michael Martin, who is an actor, an acclaimed stage actor in New Orleans, also doesn't drink. Okay, I thought he was actually a barfly. No, I, I, he, like as well. No, he's he is a he's a he's a well known New Orleans stage actor, and he does not touch alcohol. And I was like, "Holy crap!" Because you could not have convinced me that this wasn't because the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, "Yeah, every bar has that guy. Like mm-hmm. every bar has that guy who's like every too every smart for his own good, you know." Yeah. And and. And there's, it's like, and then at that point, like the movie really became like I was watching a magic trick. It really became like, I was like, I, I can't believe how authentic this feels knowing that this is, this is basically a big gigantic improv exercise. They took these people and they, they put them in this place and they filmed for 18 hours and caught it all and got this great improvisational exercise that feels 110% authentic. I think the only yeah. thing that might not is when the, the kids um, run back into the bar where the, where the mm. bartender's son runs back into the bar is the only thing that I thought felt even mildly cinematic. Um, yeah, every, everything else felt like it was fly on the wall. Yeah, and no, completely. There's always these movies. I, I felt this way about Florida project where the woman who played the mom in Florida project, when it came times to award season, like she was so freaking good. And during award season where people are talking about best performances, her name was not in the mix at all. And there are these, there are these times where I think people do there, especially for unknowns. If they show up in a movie and they do such a phenomenal job that you're convinced that's just who they are. It keeps them away from discussion about their actual acting and performances because you just go, Oh, they're not acting. That's just who that person is. And I really hope it's a small movie, but there's a big part of me that hopes people notice Michael Martin's performance in this. So, so good. As far as the movie goes, I don't really like hanging out in bars. I, you've worked <laughs> as a bartender before, so this is probably intimately familiar to you in a way that it, it wasn't to me. Yeah, for two decades. So, yeah. like, I, I'm like, every person in this movie, that person has been a regular at a bar, not the exact actor or non-actor in the case, because there's only some actors and the rest were just 
unbelievably actual bar flies who are just like comfortable with it. Sure. I can get drunk and just bullshit. <laughs> uh, I knew all these people. Uh, I was like so familiar with it and I haven't bartended in a long time, but it really did bring it all back. I, my bars I worked in weren't as divey as this one, but <laughs> nonetheless, it's deeply realistic. And Michael Martin is the most realistic of any of them. And it's shocking to hear he doesn't even drink. I mean, that guy, I, I know like three different people, regulars who all are that guy. Yeah. Michael Martin. So the, exactly. the, the way I found that out even was through a social media post about one of the actors in the film passing away, which is the, the, the guy with like, he's dressed like a 70s sitcom character. He's got the mm-hmm. jean jacket on with the UFO on the back and the, yeah. and the big floppy hat. Um, that, that, that guy was a local musician. Um, and he had worked out the scene with Michael Martin where, uh, they're on the couch together because, uh, Martin had this idea that he wanted to execute, but he was, he was afraid of, that was the only person that he had known prior to the shoot. And so he went to him and said, Hey, I have this idea. Would you do this scene with me? Um, and that, that actor ended up passing away, uh, at, at sea, I believe, um, and in that in that post where Martin was remembering his friend and and co-star, uh, he mentioned then that he didn't drink in the role, and that was just uh, it's mind blowing. It, it's funny, yeah. uh, as much as I, as much as I was like, yeah, I don't know about the movie itself, like just as a, as a narrative, as a as a story, as as much as I like you know, fought against my better. I'm a, I'm a narrative guy. I like a I like a story. I like an art. I like, Me too. I like five act structure, three act structure. Like I, I'm, I'm not into stuff that's like quasi experimental. Um, but this movie really stuck with me this week. You know, I, I, it's been the one out of everything that we've talked about on the show that I've devoted the most mental energy to over the past week. Mm-hmm. And I'd really like to see it in, in that same magic trick way where, when you know how they do it, you want to see it again. I, mm-hmm. I now that I know how it's done, I really want to see it again from from the start. So weirdly, I didn't have that same reaction. I did. I find it kind of mesmerizing as I was watching it, but when it was over. I'm like, I don't think I'll ever watch that again. But I'm glad I saw it, and it was really like just transformed me to a different place. That was a, as you said, 110 percent convincing, and that it was real. Uh, and, you know, I mean, and it is some weird mix of real and not real. It is an interesting little experiment. I think the criticisms because of that aspect of it are kind of preposterous, but whatever. Well, it was so from my understanding, the Ross brothers have only done docs. And when it was presented on the festival docket, the assumption was because it was the Ross brothers and because it looked like a doc, that it was a doc. And then people felt tricked. That's, yeah. that's, that's the takeaway that I, that I got from reading more about it. Yeah, I did too. But apparently even at those festivals, they came out and were saying, this is not a documentary, but people were like, okay. Anyway, so this Blu-ray, it's about 98 minutes long. Uh, it comes with an after hours bonus featurette, which is kind of a neat thing where they, cause you know, everybody is quarantining cause this came out this year. So they're like in this sort of basement that's been retrofitted to sort of look like a bar in ways with like Christmas lights strung up and stuff. And they've set up a bunch of TVs and laptops in different places around it where their zoom conversation ha- come having zoom conversations with the various people. So it's like they belly up to the table there that they're at and talk to them. And I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool that they did that. The weirdest part of it all is they have a special guest 
cast, and for no reason I can detect, it's David Byrne who comes in and talks to them and sings. And you're like, why is David Byrne in this? No one knows. But he is. He must be a fan. Plus, there's two never-seen-before bonus scenes. Uh, and yeah, I I think this is solid. Like, obviously, John does, yeah, too. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on to the next one, which is going back to another, man, we've been covering some Richard Pryor films this year, and this is another one, and this is one another one that I hadn't seen before, 1981's Bustin' Loose. And the reason I actually didn't see this initially is not just because my parents probably wouldn't have let me see it when I was 11 years old, but also this was kind of limited, apparently, with theatrical releases. A lot of places chose not to play it because even though it seems like it's going to be kind of a family-friendly movie, and it is, except that Richard Pryor is the lead and he's just cussing up a storm and, and doing the Richard Pryor thing. And also there's a child Vietnamese prostitute. So that's weird. Although it plays out strangely, like in a touching way. But so the story is he's a convict. He's violated his parole. Uh, there's a fun scene where he and a friend try to steal a bunch of TVs from a store and uh, they get caught. And also the follow-up where he reverse psychologies the judge uh, into not sending him to jail, putting him back on parole. But his parole officer, who he's known for years, Donald, played by Robert Christian, is like, okay, but, you know, I mean, I have helped you. You got to help me. So my girlfriend, Vivian, played by the great Cicely Tyson, she is a school teacher. Her school was closed down because of budget cuts, and the kids have to be relocated and taken to her aunt's farm in rural Washington, where she's going to sort of have an impromptu new school. And so he says to Joe, Richard Pryor, well, you're going to drive this old bus, school bus, and you're going to drive all of them out there. And he wants nothing to do with it. He's like, kids, fuck that. I'm not a babysitter. Uh, but eventually gets into it. And as you can imagine what would happen in this sort of film in the 80s, he slowly grows to like the kids. The kids slowly grow to like him. Uh, Cicely Tyson and him can't stand each other until they do start to like each other. And then they start to really like each other and yada, yada, yada. I mean, the plot is nothing surprising. There's very little here that is surprising. But I will say there's some genuinely pretty fucking funny moments in here. There's a bit where they get the Ku Klux Klan to help push them out of the mud that I thought was genuinely a riot. And there's a part that I thought was actually kind of touching with, like I said, the little girl at first, I'm like, Jesus Christ movie, what the fuck? Where one of the girls is like a 14 year old ex-child prostitute who keeps going, hey, what's up? And you want to go back to my room? You're like, this is not cool and he's like oh god he's grossed out by it like Oof, no until finally he confronts her in a way that i was like that was actually kind of strangely moving <laughs> uh i really liked this i didn't think i would like it as much as i did it, on its surface it's kind of generic for films of this kind or this time but ultimately prior sold this for me this was one that uh was a movie that my girlfriend grew up with where they had this on VHS. And so she was, I mean, she knew the lines of dialogue, you know, as they would happen. Um, <laughs> I've never, I had never seen it. It, it does not feel like it came out in the eighties. It feels like it came out in the seventies. There's like residual seventiesness to the overall look and feel of the movie. Um, yeah. And it's very much following like the sort of bad news bears template of taking um, someone who shouldn't be around kids and then dropping them in around kids. And honestly, like kind of a one upmanship in, in the scene where she describes all of the kids and all their various problems that, you know, are all going to be like little t comedic ticks that will be 
sort of addressed or checked off or have gags written around like as the movie yeah. goes on. Um, the blind kid who wants to drive. Yeah. You know. Uh, I thought this was okay. It's, um, you know, it's funny because Richard Pryor, I, I just got through watching uh, The Comedy Store, which has a lot of uh, a lot of talk about Richard Pryor in it. And I haven't watched a lot of Richard Pryor stand-up, like barely any. So my familiarity with Richard Pryor is kind of flailing through mediocre kids movies <laughs> which I hear who he was as a comic and who I see on screen it's always like this like floundering in over his head kind of dude um, it, it always seems at odds with what his comic persona on stage was when people talk about like how angry and pointed and direct he was yet in movies he's like a fool he, he's always playing a, f a fool to varying degrees um, this was okay. I thought this was okay. It's a little long in the tooth. Um, it, it kind of dips its toes into action comedy water in the back half a little bit. Um, this was, it, it was fine. There's a reason, you know, sometimes you uncover a gem and other times you're like, oh, okay, that's, that's what that movie is. And this was one where it's like, all right, now I have seen Bustin' Loose. I actually had it confused because of the title. I had it confused with Stir Crazy, which I've never seen because I, I Bustin' Loose made me think, oh, it's about him getting out of jail, which in my head was Stir Crazy, which is not what right. this movie is. Which is, which is, I think easily the best Richard Pryor movie. Okay. Like, like head, like, and for some reason the Kino who's been steadily releasing Richard Pryor movies, Hasn't done that one. I, I haven't um, seen that. I, I I watched Silver Streak and found it oddly unfunny. Um, yeah. But that's yeah, that's about the only time I've dipped my toes into stuff where he's making movies for adults. And then Blue Collar, which we talked about months ago. Which was great. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, Blue Collar is like great, but in a way you don't expect it to be, mm. like not as a comedy. Um, uh, this is more what you would expect from a Richard Pryor comedy from made in 1981, I think. Uh, like I said, stir crazy. It's him and Gene Wilder together, which that in that movie you think, oh my God, I hope these guys get back together again. They, they're like the best team. And then they made two more movies, both of which are not good. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, this is, I liked it more than you did, but there's a new audio commentary by film historian and critic Sergio Mims and then radio spots and theatrical trailers. Not a lot extra here, but I do think if you consider yourself a prior fan or films of this type, the Bad News Bears types, that this is well worth a look. I'm glad your girlfriend was happy, at least. Oh, yeah. She she had a lot of fun with it. So if, if it doesn't get my ringing endorsement, it definitely got hers. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we're going to cover one real quick that you did not see. And this is Westworld season three. Yes, I know. We did a full highly suspect or uh, screener squad review of this, a long one on season three, where I was the one kind of going, this is the point to me where this show is really, I mean, I was not as crazy about the second season as the first. And this was, uh, well, you're trying something different at least. And it didn't really work for me that well either. I know a lot of the critics loved this, loved it better than the second season. I don't know whether I preferred it or not to the second season, probably, but I was pretty damn mixed about it. But you can listen to the full review for the that, and also we reviews, reviewed it when it came out on Blu-ray. But I'm bringing it up now because I felt like it. Fuck you. No, I bring it up now because they have the 4K and Blu-ray combination package, which has just come out. and. Sure. Uh, I'll take any HBO stuff that I even mildly like on 4K. I'm, I'm very excited to, to, to own the best possible physical copy of any of this stuff. And there's no 
extra stuff in terms of bonus features that wasn't with the Blu-ray set that we already discussed. It's, you know, it is what it is. It's, it's the best version of Westworld season three. So if that interests you, then here you go. Here's the new set. Although I liked the uh, cover art considerably better for the Blu-ray than this one, which is just very, very basic, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, you haven't watched any of the Westworld, right, John? I've seen the first episode twice. Why did you just think? Well, maybe I didn't. Everyone else seems to like it. Maybe I'll give it another try, type of thing. And then no, you still I, didn't like I it. liked it fine. I, um, you know, it's just there's just not enough time in the world to watch and do everything you want to watch and do. So, Westworld is one of those that uh, just you know didn't happen. No, there's no Fair there's enough. no grand reason. It's just you know life's short. Just yeah, <laughs> that's all. <laughs> that's that's fair. <laughs> life is indeed short thing. thank you well we'll move on to a film that regardless of how life short life is i really really want everyone to give this movie a chance because it is this is my third time seeing it i saw it in the theater i saw it when it came out on blu-ray and now i'm or on dvd and now i'm seeing the new criterion blu-ray edition of ghost dog way of the samurai which is tied for my favorite jim jarmusch film with uh dead man and this is the story of Forrest Whitaker, who plays a character named Ghost Dog, who models his life after the code of the samurai, which it regularly shows on the screen, like these things in the way of the samurai, uh, these lessons that in some way apply to what's going on in the plot. And because his life was saved when he was younger by a very cliched, intentionally so, Italian gangster, uh, Louis, he's decided that he is the retainer of Louis and uh, will take jobs for him, which he gets through Passenger Pigeon, which is, you know, not technically a thing that exists anymore, which they even point out in the movie, but they do anyway. So he's really good at his job and his gen, other than the fact he goes and kills people, he seems to be a pretty nice guy. He's friends with a local uh, ice cream salesman who speaks nothing but French. And he doesn't speak any French and the guy doesn't speak any English. So they have this running joke where the guy will say something in French and he has no idea what he's saying. And But then it'll come to him the same thought and he'll say it out loud, like right what the guy just said. And you're like, OK, that's kind of a funny gimmick. And he also has a, a friendship with a young girl in the neighborhood who he sort of is passing on books to. But everything goes sideways right at the, the first hit he does in the beginning because he takes out a guy who's a made man, even though it was, he was ordered to. And the mobster in question, his, the guy who gives him his orders is like, well, they told me to. They're like, yeah, we did. But also you can't just kill a made man, even though we told you to do it. So uh, you're going to have to kill, find and kill the guy who did it. So this has a lot in common with the 1967 John Pierre Melville film Les, Les Samurai, which I've never seen, but you can't read anything about this movie without someone pointing out how, like, almost point for point, at, this is, like, that close to a remake of it. But with a very Jarmusch sense and a, a strong dose of the RZA, who came in and did an original soundtrack for this, which is excellent. Every time uh, Ghost Dog steals a car, which is how he gets around, he always has a CD with him, which he puts into the CD player, which is playing a RZA song. Uh, RZA himself has a brief appearance. But yeah, I I kind of worship this film. There's something about it that's like, it's very violent, not gory, but it's very violent, but it's so zen-like. You're just relaxed watching it, you know? I feel like it's it's like... AMSR violence. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I, there's a, I, I thought it came out 
in the early 2000s and I was like, wow, this has such a, it has such a 90s indie movie feel that's so, there's, it's just a flavor and I cannot articulate what it is about, I, you know, I think part of it is honestly that the stuff was still shot on film mm-hmm. and film just has a texture to it. There's something about the way that film is because it's chemical and imperfect there's something about the way that film is that just makes movies different. And I, I hate to sound like that guy, but I know, but there's uh there's just something there. And I'm watching this going, man, this has such a nineties feel. And then I thought, oh, I guess this, you know, thinking that it came out in like 2001 for some reason, but then finding, finding out it was, it did come out in 99. I was like, this really feels like the last of the nineties indie movies, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know what it is about that particular specific flavor. There's a nostalgia to it for me that reminds me of when I was at my hungriest as a film fan, when I was reading Premiere and Movie Line and absorbing as much as I could and renting as many obscure things as I could. There's actually another movie on this list that reminds me of those days as well. Um, but there was something about being a film fan in the 90s because you you had... The, the indie world was really cracked open. Like, in the 80s, I feel like there were indie movies, but if you weren't going... If you didn't have an art house theater nearby, then you were just screwed when it came to indie movies, unless you were catching it on cable. In the 90s, I feel like the indie movies were there in the video store. Like, they... they That situation had been cracked completely open, so you did have all the blockbusters, but you had all the smaller stuff, too. And I get weirdly like wistful for the for the era of these little these little movies and ghost dog was one of those that i hadn't seen and i didn't know it was going to be that way i mean i guess i should have guessed with it being jim jarmusch but um i really enjoyed this it grew on me as it progressed um i wasn't quite sure what to make of it at the start and then it's little idiosyncrasies like the gangsters watch cartoons there's little there's little touches of humor there is a very, um, like, almost almost turning, like, Japanese samurai culture into, like, fetish-type uh, territory. Um, it, it, was, it was very good, and it really grew on me over its running time. I, I really did like this movie. Yeah, me too. I, I'm still, to this day, hoping that, uh, much like Kill Bill 3, or uh, you know, that... We're like get a sequel all these years later with the little girl from it now having grown up and and adapted into the way of the samurai herself. I remember <laughs> hearing that years ago that they were going to do a second Ghost Dog. I don't know if he's still entertaining oh, really? the idea of it. I remember hearing that like years and years ago that that he was rolling around the idea of a of a follow up to Ghost Dog. Dude, if Jarmish was certain that's what he wanted to do and had like all the ideas, I'd be all behind it. But I certainly wouldn't want to see some other hacks version of it i found out I, here's a piece of interesting trivia i didn't dive into the special features on this criterion typically i do but I, I didn't on this particular one but i did find out uh i so there's like a younger version of forrest whitaker that appears in flashbacks that you see yeah. you see the attack and i'm like man i don't know who they cast but that dude looks just like forrest whitaker it's forrest whitaker's younger brother He's, Is it really? Yeah, he's got a he's got a brother that's ten years younger than him, and the younger brother plays him in those flashback scenes. 
God, I just watching that, I just looked at it and went, well, it must have just been like, because you, you, you kind of just see him from like weird angles. And I was like, oh, it's probably just Forrest Whitaker. And they just shot it in a way to make him look like younger with the lighting and stuff and the filters, which are often those scenes. I had no idea it was like actually someone else. Yeah, yeah it's, his, <laughs> it's his kid brother. Uh, but there are a lot of extras here. This is a Criterion. Oh, yeah. So there's a 85 minute audio only Q&A with Jim Jarmusch, which is really kind of fun where people, I don't know where they did it, but fans of the film submitted questions and he just goes through these questions and answers them. And Jim is just a delight to listen to. He's very funny. He's very self-effacing. Uh, he, he's, he clearly is just kind of a nice guy and, uh, and very smart. And a lot of the stuff in there is not... It's not always the answers you think they're going to be, which is interesting. There's a uh, Zoom conference call with actors Forrest Whitaker, uh, Isaac DeBanco, and uh, Michael B. Gillespie, who all go back and talk about their memories of the film. And that goes on about 30 minutes, moderated by film scholar Michael B. Gillespie. Uh, casting with Ellen Lewis, 16 minutes on that, which is also audio with her talking about her work with Jarmusch and the casting process. The Shifu Shi Yan Ming, which is a, this guy is the founder of the USA Shaolin Temple, who was a uh, person who came in and helped with the martial arts sequence sequences of the film and the samurai work. And so they talked to him in his... Uh, uh, dojo and that's kind of interesting there's some archival interviews with Jim Jarmusch Forrest Whitaker and the RZA there's uh, the Odyssey a journey in the life of the samurai which is more interviews with them those are 60 minutes and 22 minutes apiece there's Flying Birds the music of Ghost Dog which is an interview with RZA and how he picked the music and designed the music there's some deleted scenes and outtakes that are not really essential but they're there uh, there's the isolated score and there's an illustrated booklet as well. And what was really cool is that it comes with a little miniature book as well. That's all the stuff from the way of the samurai, the book of the samurai from the movie and like a little sort of fold open book thing. And I was like, oh, that's such a neat little bonus thing to have. I'm so excited that that exists. But yeah, I, I loved this and I thought it was a, a really great package that Criterion put together for it. I mean, I think some of it, like the Zoom call and Jarmusch just being on audio is entirely because they put that together this year. And, well, what are you going to do? You know, people yeah. aren't gathering in person. And it would have been great to see them uh, together. But, you know, this is what we got. And what we got is still pretty great. So we're going to move on to another film, which I literally just reviewed for the site. It was funny. This movie, Mortal, which I was excited to see because it's by Andre or Overdahl who is a Norwegian director who did some movies I really love, like Troll Hunter, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Yes, I kind of love Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I'm, I've softened on it since my initial review, where I was like, I like it. Now I'm like, you know, I kind of love that movie. It's exactly, there's not a lot of great horror films for kids. And that's one I'm like, you know what? I would definitely put that on a great horror movie for kids list. So I was like, Mortal, he's doing a new movie. And it's about, spoiler, Thor. <laughs> It's not much of a spoiler. The cover's got this guy with like lightning bolts coming down all around him. And you're like, probably 20 minutes into the movie, you were like, oh, he's Thor. <laughs> we just reviewed this for Screener Squad. So I went into it at length on there and my feelings, very, which were very mixed on this film, quite frankly. But there was also a lot that I did like. But let's hear what John Golson feels about this movie that now is also out on Blu-ray. Oh, Wow. Um, I thought, I thought that this started pretty good and then it, narratively it keeps repeating the same scene over and over and over and over until it gets to the end, which is, 
Uh, he meets a girl. His powers lash. He when people attack him like the Hulk, when people like put him under high pressure situations, he lashes out and goes on the run. And the movie does that like six times and then gets to the ending. And it's like it was. There was no. You know, we talked earlier about structure. There's no rising action, climax, falling action. It's just the same sequence of him being cornered, lashing out, going on the run. Being cornered, lashing out, going on the run. There's no escalation to the scenes. There's no heightened stakes. There's no um, greater displays of power. It's just sort of the same scene over and over until you get to the end. And the end is the reveal that, like, oh, his his powers are based in, you know, Norse mythology. Um, this was ex- extremely mediocre movie. It's very slick, a very professionally made, good looking, good effects, and just, just narratively stunted. Like there's, there's no momentum. There's no movement in this thing at all. I liked it more than you did, but not a huge amount more than yeah. you did. I also really like Norse mythology a lot. Um, one of my favorite books the last couple of years was actually Neil Gaiman's take on Norse mythology that he put out, which is just delightful. Uh, and it's based on like as close as possible to the actual original Norse myths. I highly recommend that if you've not checked it out. So it was like, okay, I'll watch a movie by this director based sort of like a, a retro new take on what if Thor came back and, and doesn't know he's Thor. It's fine. It's just there's no surprises here, like, at all, except that you end it with what should have been, like, the middle of the second act. And I was like, okay, that's a weird... I mean, I get that you're like, I'd like to do another one, but come on, man. I mean, as you said, they kind of just do the same shit over and over and over again, and then finally, in the last ten minutes, the movie starts moving, and you're like, that's it? Okay. Yeah. But I, I, I didn't... I found this kind of nice but not memorable i would definitely watch a sequel if he promises to make shit happen (laughs) but there's only one extra here it's the dark hero the making of mortal which is about 23 and a half minutes um yeah it's it's okay won't spend too long on it because like i said we just reviewed it we did not just review the veil which is an older 2016 american supernatural horror film that jason that blumhouse productions did although this kind of got I mean, not even kind of, it just got buried. Like, this didn't really have a theatrical release almost at all. I definitely did not hear about this when it came out. It must have just, like, been one of those they didn't screen for press at all. Well, he's been doing a lot of TV stuff, too. I mean, there's been a lot of, like, made-for-Hulu, made-for-Amazon stuff lately. This didn't even fall between the cracks of that. Like, I don't think it, I don't think it got theatrical and it didn't get released as part of those deals either. I was told that this was one of those movies, which happens with horror sometimes where it did actually have like a week it was in theaters, wow. but they did no marketing for it. They did not send it or notify press about it. It was just like, it just got dumped. Oh. And I thought that was weird because this isn't a great horror film by any stretch of the imagination, but it's also nowhere near the worst thing I've seen from Blumhouse productions. It's probably almost a little under mid range for Blumhouse for me. And also made me go, Hey, yeah, where the hell has Jessica Alba been all this time? <laughs> Did she just disappear for a while? I mean, even in 2016, you're still like last thing I remember seeing her in before that was the original Sin City. So, okay. But the story is surrounds around a, uh, cult 
25 years after said cult, Heaven's Veil, this documentary filmmaker, which is Jessica Alba playing Maggie Price, has got her whole team with her. And uh, Lily Rabe was the one survivor as a child of this thing. And she's agreed after much talking to to go and go back to the land in which they had all their places, which has been closed off for a long time and look for footage from this mass suicide of the cult that has never actually been found. So they all go there. You find the footage. One can't help but be reminded of Sinister. I certainly was. Uh, there's a lot of secret. Okay, now let's watch this film. Oh, that has added to what we know about this and the plot and what's happening. I mean, there's a delightful appearance by Thomas Jane as the cult leader, which I actually think he is the high point of this whole film as the, the, the charismatic cult leader of this group. But it's weird to me to tell a story, even if it is a horror movie, where it's like this cult that had this extreme behavior and then be like, yeah, well, it turns out they were right the whole time. <laughs> it's like, no, that's not a good message to send out. Don't don't send that message. That's not something you want people to be thinking about. Like, hey, maybe that guy who came to my, my door with those pamphlets about uh, that weird little commune out in the hills from here uh, that wear all those white robes. Maybe there's something to that after all. There is not. And you should not acknowledge that in any way. But. I mean, this is fine. It's a lot of jump scares. It's very Blumhouse. It doesn't, parts of it work, parts of it don't. And uh, at the end, I wasn't mad I saw it or anything, but it's something I will have completely forgotten about by this time next year, for sure. I think this director was discovered by Steven Spielberg. Back Uh in the day, he did uh, an Irish gangster movie called State of Grace, and he did Three O'Clock High, a Phil Jeannot. And back in the day, he did a short film that got the attention of Steven Spielberg, who got him to direct episodes of Amazing Stories. So for a little while, this director was one of Spielberg's, like, protégés. Hmm. Um, hey, I didn't like this. <laughs> Shocker. Um, this is basically the Guyana tragedy with, like, but, like... What the, if Jim Jones was right? Yeah, and the names <laughs> are replaced and stuff. It was... My deal is if they fictionalize it, but then they keep everything, which is weird because it's sort of like making a movie about a cannibal and you're calling him like Defrey Jammer. It's sort of like, <laughs> okay, like you could have just come up with like a completely different, like a, like a completely different cult, a completely different method of committing mass suicide, a different vibe. But it's very much like, oh, we want to do the Jim Jones story as a traditional horror film. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I, none of that, which, which none of that really. Someone has already done. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 AJ Bowen was in one. The Sacrament. Uh, was it? Yeah. The Sacrament. Yeah. And then that they, they changed the names and everything and, uh, and, and still keep it very, very close to Guyana. This is, this was, um, yeah, I didn't enjoy this. This was very, every, it, it, it was difficult to, stay interested i didn't like thomas jane in it i thought he was everybody in it is giving i will say this everybody in it is really like and i I mean everybody like i think that everybody thought that they were making something better than what the final product ended up being and sometimes with horror movies people are just making product this i really feel like i I do think thomas jane was going like i'm gonna bring my a-game to this but I don't think that worked for me and it doesn't work as a whole. I just, I just thought this was kind of boring. Um, and when it was doing, 
when it was getting more into the horror stuff, like none of that stuff really like got my blood pumping. And there's also like twists or revelations of the movie that the movie presents like ta-da moments where I just kind of went, yeah, that's what I assumed. Like I kind of <laughs> thought that the whole time. Um, I, no, this was not, uh, this was not a favorite. You, you can do worse. There is, there is certainly worse out there, but I just thought this was Dullsville. I, I, you know, I wasn't really bored by it so much as like wishing it was better. Cause there's elements of it that I really like. I actually liked the kind of final twist, like, Oh, what actually happened on suicide day? I was like, okay, I can't say I didn't suspect that was where it was going, but like, I, I think that was, th it's like the script for this in terms of the story is so much better than any of the execution for it is. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of it is that, I don't know, maybe this director just, doesn't know how to make a horror film. He worked with Thomas Jane before on the much lauded The Punisher Dirty Laundry short film in 2012. Uh, but a lot, most of it, looking back at his, the rest of his career, he doesn't have another horror film. I mean, I, my favorite thing on his list is a uh, three o'clock high back in 1987. Yeah. But, you know, it just, it's a guy's like, oh shit, anybody can make a horror film. It feels like somebody who approached that like this, and this could have been good, and instead it was just kind of mediocre. There's only an audio commentary here with the director who, sure enough, talks shit about his own film, describing it as like, yeah, it's just a formula horror film, you know, I'm just doing what you're supposed to do with these things, and working for a paycheck. Like, Come on, dude. Seriously. Well, don't it shows. Yeah, it does show. We'll move on to what many people who like Hong Kong cinema uh, consider to be an all-time classic in horror, which is finally getting a decent Blu-ray release from Unearthed Films, which has steadily been putting out more of the 80s and 90s Hong Kong stuff that sadly has been getting absolutely no attention whatsoever with new generation video. And that is The Untold Story. All right, so there's this whole category of Chinese film that's called Category 3, and that's their NC-17. It's like R but harder, because basically when someone there is like, oh, we got, uh, we got the, it looks like they gave us a Category 3 rating. It's like, well, fuck it. We might as well show everything then. <laughs> that, I mean, to a point, they can't show, like, penetration pornography. But other than that, pretty much nothing is off the table. And the untold story is based very loosely on a real, really distressing crime called the Eight Immortals Restaurant Murders, where this guy went into a restaurant, closed the door, and murdered all 10 members of the family who worked and lived there, including a bunch of little children, and cut them into pieces. Very disturbing story. This takes genre actor Anthony Wong, and really just kind of a legend of Hong Kong cinema. He's been in so many good Hong Kong movies and a lot of Category 3 films. And cast him as this character who's sort of a a nerd-ish type guy, but one with a severe anger problem and is definitely deeply disturbed who does, in fact, these murders. But the twist for the point of the movie, which many people it literally turned into an urban legend, was that he was cooking their meat of people he would kill. And he kept he, he started running the restaurant himself and killing more people. He would cook their meat into... Uh, pork buns for people and was doing quite a thriving business from that. People were like, man, this guy's pork buns kick ass. Uh, as well, there's a side story about the cops who are following him, which is played completely for slapstick, but was kind of a criticism of at the time for the Hong Kong police and how ineffectual that they were. 
there's a lot of stuff here with the comedy that you kind of have to be aware of the context politically of the time in Hong Kong for her to go, why is this happening? But I still kind of laughed at it. For some reason, the police captain shows up every day with a new hooker who's gorgeous and all the other cops, except for the one female cop, are like, woo, yada, yada, woo, check her out. The one female cop's like, why don't you like me like that? Uh, it, it's a dumb side story. It's occasionally lightly amusing, but Anthony Wong is fantastic in this. This is gory as fuck. Super ridiculously gory, and it is pretty disturbing. I've seen stuff that's much worse, but when this came out in... Uh, God, when did it come out? 1993, it was kind of like, holy shit! And I gotta say, I really recommend this. It's very unpleasant uh, little piece of filth um sadistic depraved uh you know content warnings for rape and uh cannibalism and other things i, I the whole thing is so cartoony though that it, it's really difficult to get offended so it is highly unpleasant but not unwatchable because of how it's just a little bit looney tunes like it's just a little goofy that moves it out of the realm of sickening into something that's you, you, it's almost like you can't get too mad at it because it's, it's, it's a little cartoony, right? It's kind of, it's kind of the same way the evil dead movies are where they're like, okay, this is so kind of absurdly over the top that, and filmed in a sort of fast moving, crazy sort of way. And the lead actor is so like bug eyed and crazy looking that it's hard to make it seem real. Yeah, I thought that this was this was like diverting. I I <laughs> it, I watched it all, and I watched it all with like kind of a half cocked smile on my face. This was the other movie in the stack that reminded me of being a film fan in the nineties, when you just like devour all this like international movies as well, like these crazy like you know just trying to find like the most gory or like the most obscure. And you're just digging, 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 digging. And, and that's really, you know, my tastes have changed. Um, at, and me at age 19, or well, this movie came out when I was 17. So let's say 17, 18. I probably would have owned this on VHS. Yeah. Now my tastes have changed to the point where I'm just like, I don't, I don't need to see this again. <laughs> like I'm, I'm fine. But I, but, but there was that, you know, we've talked, we've had a couple movies on here. Maybe it's 2020 that's making me nostalgic. We've had a couple movies that maybe I'm a midlife crisis. We've had a, <laughs> we've had a couple movies on here that have been like windows into the film fan that I used to be. Um, over the last couple times I've been on Digital Noise. We had Mall Rats mm -hmm. last time. Untold Story was kind of that way. Even though I hadn't seen it before, it was very much like, this is exactly the kind of movie like I would have special ordered through some phone number in the back of a magazine back when I was a young, hungry film fan. Yeah. Um, uh, that said, you know, I think you can tell from what Chris and I have said if this is for you or not. Other Category 3 films include like Ricky O, uh, if, if you're familiar with that one. Which is the best one. one. You know, That's the best I think. I think, too, <laughs> the, uh, uh, there is the comparison to NC-17 in the States, but the difference, uh, a major difference is that in the States, NC-17 never became a very strong rating or label because exhibitors wouldn't play NC-17 movies. So they were, they could never be successful because they just, they just weren't played anywhere except outside of like independently owned art house picked uh, theaters. I think with Category 3, at least the impression that I get from the Category 3 stuff 
was that people would go seek them out. Like they were, they were successful and it was almost like a brand unto itself. Like you're going to go see the new category three films or what's out right now. That's category three. And you would go see that because you knew you were going to get a lot of sex and nudity and you're going to get a lot of gore or whatever. Um, yeah, and there's a really comprehensive uh, feature-length uh, documentary, yeah. too. about Which I was going to say, that is the number one reason to pick this up. It's an hour and 23-minute documentary on the history of Category 3 films. And I admit, like, as a huge Hong Kong film fan, I didn't know but so much about Category 3 mm-hmm. films because a lot of them just were never brought over here at all. Like, you'd read about them in, like, Eastern Heroes magazine, which, yes, that's people who were fans of this cinema back then used to actually go anywhere to pick up issues of that if you could find them and i still have the book they show in there like they show like a cover it's actually the cover of a compilation book that they put out of like the best of eastern heroes and i still have it (laughs) uh there's uh it's really cool to learn about this whole cinema and it kind of also gives you some heads up of like what to see and what to avoid you know but yeah, that alone makes this worth it, I think. Yeah, it's really it's if this if any of this sounds of interest to you, it's worth seeking out. If already we've talked about the sex and the violence and you're like, mm, I don't think this is for me. Trust me, it's not <laughs> like if yeah. you're if you're rolling it around like hmm, it has rape, but you said it was funny. It's like, no, no, you're probably <laughs> best if you if you stay away. Not you're right. Yeah, it's not uh, unless you're absolutely certain this is for you it's not for you <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh there's also a 13 and a half minute cantonese carnage which is an interview with a guy named rick baker who is not the special effects guy what a disappointment i know <laughs> you're like you get you get done watching this like movie with all this gore and you know and i go look at the extras and it's like oh there's a rick, baker. rick baker's talking about, i can't wait to see what he says about the effects and what makeup like he envies Not and that guy. then you put it on it's like uh, just a dude named rick baker exactly <laughs> <laughs> and it's <laughs> uh and i'm like um so you also get a q and a with director herman yao there's a commentary with anthony wong there's a commentary with herman yao there's an audio commentary with art edinger and bruce holacek there's the isolated film school score and there are the trailers but i do think this is a really solid release, and I think it's a just absolute shame that the most of this 80s, 90s output from Hong Kong has just disappeared. I mean, a lot of this stuff never even got a DVD release over here, just got VHS at best. And I really, there was a period of my life, I loved this shit. And this company, Unearthed Films, is just starting to be one of the people who's focusing on these things. But, like, they sent me... One of the ones I was super excited to get, The Bride with White Hair, which I have an old non-animorphic DVD for, but that's a great one, right? Yeah, that's that's a classic. Yeah. And it was, I put it in and it's like, oh, we're really sorry, but you have to have a uh, European player or all no regions. I was like, it doesn't say that anywhere on the box or the advertisement for it. What the fuck? Uh, I was like, okay, um, weird. And also, why not? Why wouldn't they give you the rights to all region on that? I have no idea, but very frustrating moment for me. I was like, because I do not have an all region player. So I was disappointed. I do not either. But I I thought this was actually really cool. And I hope they do more that are all region. We're going to end with a a, uh, region. Was it region one? I guess America (laughs) 4K of Antebellum, a movie that I famously was the sole defender for on the site when we reviewed this on Screener Squad, and I still stand by my words that I think this is a 
deeply misunderstood little horror film. Uh, I was happy as hell when I was, I actually had one of the few nights out that Martin Thomas and I from Double Toasted, we got together and we're just kind of catching up uh, on uh, movies. And he told me, yeah, it's the same way with me. I was the only one who really liked this movie a lot. And everybody else on the review just hated it with a passion. Uh, so I actually have no idea what you're going to feel. I think that statistically the odds are you're not going to have liked Antebellum either. But uh, for me, this very influenced in terms of the structure and um, message and horror by Get Out, but with a totally different tone, really worked for me. I can see why it didn't work for a lot of people, though. So who reviewed it uh, when you reviewed it in your group? I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm sorry to fellow reviewers. I don't remember who you were. Was there a reviewer of color? Do you at least remember that? Yes, there was. Okay. Yes. And she did not like it either. (laughs) Okay. I was just curious. And I actually spent some time today reading reviews by uh, black critics. Me too. Because it was really hated by all critics of (laughs) both white and black critics. Um, I think this is okay. I think it's just an okay movie. I, I don't get the the vitriol for it. I don't get the hate for it. I also don't think that a lot of it. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's not as good as it could be with the same idea. I'll try to dance around spoilers. I think that there is there are better ways to have approached the material than to sort of write it backwards from the hook, um, and. That, but that's all kind of armchair quarterbacking. I think the movie itself is okay. If this were like a uh, one-hour episode of like Black Mirror or um, uh, you know, Twilight Zone, appeals Twilight Zone on, on CBS, I think that the reception to it would be a lot different. I think people were highly anticipating it because the trailers were cut so good. Because it's a, it's a nice-looking movie. Um, uh and I, but I thought it was fine. It's not the best execution of its own idea, but it's, it wasn't the one-star trash that I felt like a lot of uh, critics were bestowing it with. Um, I think it's it ends up being like a very, very ambitious, but ultimately just okay studio horror film. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like for me, there's a point in this movie where I realized... Th- and it's exactly the same with Get Out, which is a much better film, but it's the same. And funny, the, most of the criticisms launched at this film, I'm like, you could say that exact same thing about Get Out, which is that, well, that's not possible. Like, I'm like, well, how could that be? It's like, it's not supposed to be. You're not really supposed to take this literally. It's definitely talking about something else. And people saying, oh, it's really racist. I'm like, first off, it's directed by a gay couple, one of which is a black man and written by a black person and stars all black people. I... I think you're putting a, a read on it that, that isn't accurate, but I, it's not my place to say that either. I just felt exactly the opposite. I felt this film was saying, like, you know, the Antebellum South never went away and mm-hmm. not in a time travel sort of way. I mean, literally, it's still fucking there and the attitudes are still there and nothing has changed. And that is the most horrifying thing of all. And I felt they really got to the emotional center of that horror here. And it really, I find it very striking at points, especially in the third act of this film. Um, It definitely could have maneuvered the three acts, which are nonlinear better than it did. 
but I really like the performances. I really like the emotion here. I don't know. It worked for me. It didn't work for most people. There's always going to be those films, but I've, I, I want to say, I feel like this is a film that time will be kinder to. Possibly. So I think, I think away from an immediate cultural conversation might help. I think away from immediate comparison to what Peel is, is creating might help. I don't, I don't know. And, and although I'm not as positive as you, I'm also, you know, not as negative as many as most. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 29% on Rotten Tomatoes, which you can take with a grain of salt based because it's Rotten Tomatoes and it's just yay or nay by some completely random arbitrary decision-making thing. But a lot of the reviews I saw, they counted as rotten. were like not any more rotten than a lot of the reviews they counted as fresh that were, they were a lot of reviews that were just kind of in the middle the way you're saying, you know, and I'm like, who decided that this was fresh or rotten? A lot of reviews they counted as rotten. I was like, uh, this was actually not really that critical of the film at all. It just said there's certain things about it. It didn't like. And like I said, once again, vice versa, I don't think it's perfect, uh, but I enjoyed it, and I thought it was beautifully shot, so I'm glad to have it on 4K. This also comes with uh, Blu-ray. It's got the history in front of us, Deconstructing Antebellum, which is an hour and seven minutes, two-part documentary, which get into the whole history of how this came to be in the production process with the directors. There's a hint of horror, The Clues of Antebellum for six minutes, which uh, had the co-writers and co-directors, George Bush and Christopher Renz, talk about the little Easter eggs that are hidden throughout the film. There's uh, about just under five minutes of opening Annabellum, which is takes a look at the opening unedited one take sequence that they shot which i thought was pretty cool uh and there's eight minutes of deleted scenes and then the theatrical trailers now we've come to the part of the show that john always dreads and that is the segment we call tell a joke that you made up just now john no i'm just kidding that's not a part of the oh, show God. it'd be great if it was though just to Holy watch you squirm. <laughs> uh no this is the part of the show we call what do we call it, Jen? Oh, pick of the week. Pick of the week? Yeah, pith, pith of the week. Week uh, of and the pick. Week of the pick. And I know for me, I'm going with Ghost Dog, which I thought was an exceptional package that they put together here for an exceptional movie that was long overdue for a Blu-ray release. But what about you, John? Uh, whole package, I would say Ghost Dog. Um, two movies for the price of one, I would say The, um, the Untold Story. Mm -hmm. uh, which you are really getting two movies that documentary in any other form would be a standalone DVD, you know, about yeah. cat three films. Um, and then you, I, and again, I, I can't stress this enough. One of the best performances of 2020 is in the movie, bloody nose, empty pockets. Um, I don't know what people will think of the movie, but it definitely contains one of the single best acting performances I've seen this year. Mm. That said, now that I've paid homage to these, these three, these three movies, it's not a three-way tie. I would probably give it to Ghost Dog in regards to one that you'll have on your shelf and revisit, you know, every every few years. Yeah, I definitely will be revisiting my copy of it. And that is it for Digital Noise this week. Thanks to John Golson. You can check out his artwork in the comic Halloween Man, which just had its big anniversary recently. What anniversary was it again? 20th anniversary. 20th anniversary. Uh, yeah, 20th anniversary. It was the first American work by uh, comic superstar Nicholas Scott, who does Black Magic for Image now. Yeah, it's 20 years old, and you can find the Halloween Man anniversary special on Comixology and wherever fine digital comics are sold. And whenever this whole epidemic se sequence is over, whenever we're done with this act 
of our existence, then you can come to Austin and see John running and writing and directing a whole bunch of uh, comedy shows. If, if live theater's ever a thing again, we'll see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll I imagine some of those books. theaters lost their leases. You know? every, every single one. Uh, um, every hi- single one? Yeah, Hideout's gone. Um, and the Vortex is still there, though. Uh, comedy ones, Institution is down, Cap City's down, Cold Town's down, Hideout's down. So four of the comedy theaters, Velveeta Room is still around, and uh, although they're not, I don't think they're doing live shows there, Velveeta Room hasn't closed, and Fallout hasn't closed. We'll see what happens. Cold Town, and... You love Fallout. Yeah, <laughs> Fallout's my thing. But uh, Cold Town is the one that I think is relocating. So I don't think Cold Town's done for, done for. I think Cold Town's just trying to find a new home because that whole block that had Cold Town and I Love Video uh, sold. Um, so they had to leave the premises, which is why both of those businesses are gone. Well, maybe if we ever do a One of Us festival here in town, we'll make everybody come to uh, one of y'all's shows. Oh, that would be nice if that could work out. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it this week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, John. Thank you.